So we're not in a teaching series this Sunday, so we're between series. Um, so I'm just preaching a message that's on my heart um, about the glory of God. There's three questions I want to work through over the next 55 minutes. That's obviously a half joke over the next half hour. Um, the three questions are this, what is the glory of God? Number two, how does the glory depart from the church? And number three, how do we prepare for its return? So why this message and why now? And there's, there's two reasons. Number one, I've been reading this book, um, Glory When Heaven Invades Earth by Bob Swords. I've actually been reading this book over the last couple of years. I've been reading a section, then putting it down, then coming back to it. I've read it probably a number of times um, and it has been blowing my mind. So my deep encouragement is for you to read it. Now, the reason I'm going to preach this sermon is that I know only 1% of the room will actually read it because I have anecdotal evidence of other times in the life of KXC where I've said, this book is phenomenal, you should read it. And across the four congregations, across 800 or so people, like normally like 1%, 0.5% will come up to me, you know, over the next six months after that and say, look, you know that book you recommended that you were raving about? I did actually read it. You massively overegged it. It was an average book and I felt disappointed. It was a letdown, to be honest. Um, but at least I know they read it. Um, so because I know you're probably not gonna read it, I am gonna give this message. Now, I'm trying different techniques with my own kids. We've got three kids, 12, um, 14, 12, 10. I'm trying to encourage them to read. Not this book, just any book. I'd settle for any book and it, it is a challenge. I'm trying to find different motivations for them. Their own educational development clearly isn't a motivating factor for them. And, and desperate times lead to desperate measures. So this summer, I am paying them to read a book. I've decided that I, I'm willing to do that. I am going to pay them to read a book of their choosing. The problem is when it comes to 800 people that are part of the KXC family, we can't afford to pay everyone in the church to read this book. Well, I would try, but we won't get that through our treasurer. So, so my encouragement is, is to read it, but because I know only 1% will, I'm going to teach this sermon because I think there's something very significant um, in what this guy has to say. Here's the second reason for this message and for now being the moment for it. I'm, I'm still trying to make sense of what the Spirit's doing in the church right now. Many of you all know of Asbury because we've, we've mentioned it before that on the 8th of February earlier this year, there was an outpouring of the Spirit in this tiny town, Wilmore in Kentucky, where at this university, um, suddenly loads of people started coming to this gathering where the Spirit was being poured out in the most beautiful way. And before long, over 100,000 people from all over the world were coming to encounter the Spirit of God at work. And lots of people came to faith and just an incredible sense of the, the manifest presence of God in the room. Um, but what started at Asbury began to spread across un universities across the, the UK and, and churches in the UK, in the US and further afield were beginning to articulate, hang on, there is a spiritual hunger stirring in the church right now that is unbelievably exciting. Like I've been in ministry for 20 years and I 20 plus years and I don't think I've known a time like this where the spiritual hunger in the church is just rising and feels very exciting. But more than that, pastors are beginning to say, do you know what? The sense of the manifest presence of God in the room when we gather, that feels like it's rising too. Like this is incredibly exciting. And I don't want to hype up Asbury into something that it isn't. Um, I don't want to create a monument so that in 10, 20 years time, you know, we look back. Do you remember 
2023 when people are talking about Asbury and the outpouring of the Spirit, right? So I don't want to hype anything up, but I do want to name the significance of what I think has been stirring and is stirring. Like, I think it's a signpost, like a foretaste of what the Lord wants to do. And let me try and name three metaphors that maybe try and get at what I'm, I'm trying to articulate. Before a volcano erupts, like it moves from dormancy into a moment of waking up. And before the volcano blows, that there are tremors, like beneath the surface. You can't see it, but you can feel it, right? That, that beneath the ground, tension begins to build and there will be these tremors. Now the tremors say to people, like run, like get out of this place, right? Because this thing is waking up, this thing's about to blow. I would articulate Asbury and some of what we've been seeing in the church as just a tremor. I anticipate more tremors. This isn't everything we've been praying for. Like if this was it, I'd, I'd be pretty disappointed. It's fun, really exciting, but I'd be disappointed, right? Like what we've been praying for is an outpouring of the Spirit that doesn't just bless a university in Wilmore in Kentucky, that brings revitalization to the whole church in every part of the globe and brings a revival, not just to the church, but an awakening to the surrounding culture. That's what we're praying for. That would be a volcano bursting, right? And the glory of God beginning to manifest itself. But could it be that we're just experiencing some tremors, Right? That's, that's my sense. Here's, here's the, the second metaphor. Like when a dam is getting ready to break, right? The, the water levels rise and, and then there's pressure and, and the pressure will begin to sort of like um, bring about some cracks in the dam wall and water will just begin to make its way through one or two of the cracks and then eventually a hole will emerge and then another hole will emerge and, and you get something like this and when you have a number of holes, right, the water just starts to make its way through and eventually the dam wall will fully break. That's the moment you have a deluge, right? What happened in Asbury, Wilmore, Kentucky? It was a trickle, beautiful trickle, right? But, but what if there are cracks in the wall? Like what if there's holes beginning to emerge? And, and what if the people of God took this moment very seriously, got on their knees and started praying, Lord, we want the volcano to, to, to blow. We want the dam to break. We want your glory to fill the earth. That's what we're longing for. Here's the third metaphor. Um, when women are getting ready to give birth, like their waters will eventually break and the contractions will kick in. But before any of that, you have these like preparatory contractions. They're called Braxton Hicks, where you feel like you're going into labour. I'm told, obviously don't have personal experience, but you feel like you're going into labour. And you're like, I think this is it. I think you're this, this is it. And you normally phone them up and they're like, no, 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 this isn't it. You'd be screaming if this is it. This is just a Braxton Hicks. This is contractions getting you ready for the new life that's coming. The Apostle Paul says, in Romans 8, that, that all of creation is groaning as with the pains of childbirth. Like waiting for what? Waiting for redemption and waiting for the glory of God to be revealed. Like if creation itself is groaning, then we as the sons and daughters of God, we should be joining the groan and saying, yes, Lord, we love the tremors, but we're asking for an eruption of your glory. Yes, we, we like the trickle that's coming through the cracks, but we're wanting the dam to burst. Lord, we're longing for the new life 
life to come, we're wanting your glory to be revealed. Like this is what I'm praying for. And I think there are signs for us to be attentive to, which are really exciting. So what is the glory of God? Well, the, the word glory is used throughout Scripture as a verb and a noun. As a verb, to glory in the Lord, to take great delight in God, to boast in His presence, in His character and His nature. It's used as a verb, it's also used as a noun. Right, so Psalm 8 is an example of it being used as a noun where the psalmist says that, God, you've made us a little lower than the heavens and you've crowned us with glory and honour. In other words, what does it mean to be human? It, it means that there's a special dignity you've given us as your image bearers that we're crowned with glory and honour. So there's the glory of what it means to be human and then there's the glory of God, like His beauty, His radiance, his holiness. But there's another particular use of this noun that I want to zoom in on. And it's used here in Habakkuk 2.14, where the prophet says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a promise, by the way. And therefore, this is inevitable. There will be a moment and this is a prophecy towards you know, the end of the story when Christ returns, when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Like glory's coming. Like, and yes, this is a reference to the return of Christ Jesus, but we get foretastes of that. They're called revivals where the glory of God is poured out. So when the prophet says like the earth is gonna be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, what did he mean by glory? And this is what Bob Sword says in his book. He says, this understanding of glory is about the invasion of God's reality into the human sphere. The invasion of God's reality, His will, His purposes, His presence into the human sphere. He says, glory is used in the Bible in this final sense to describe the action of God whereby He takes of His glory, which is eternally existent in heaven, pushes through the veil that separates natural and spiritual realities and reveals within the parameters of our time and space the splendour of His magnificent beauty and splendour. He just ran out of words. The splendour of his splendour. When I run out of words, I speak in tongues. Um, but, but he's like, I'm just going to keep using the word splendour. The splendour of his magnificent splendour, right? He's trying to say, look, when the, the prophet Habakkuk talks about glory, he, he's talking about the radiance, the beauty of God, his will and his ways breaking through into the earthly realm. The invasion of God's reality into the human sphere. And I just want you to know you were made for glory and you are destined for glory, and therefore we should hunger for it in the here and now, right? So how does glory depart? Which might seem like a fairly depressing question, but it, but it takes humility to recognise if we were made for glory and destined for glory. In other words, we're made to experience the manifest presence of God and His purposes that ride on His presence. In other words, the supernatural should be part of our norm, right? Like his presence breaking in, his purpose is breaking in. It takes humility to say, if I was made for, uh, for glory and destined for glory, what I'm experiencing now feels like not fully what I was made for. I'm not experiencing glory day in, day out, right? And it takes moments for the church to wake up and with humility and say, like, it doesn't feel like the glory of the Lord is like fully present in this place. 
Like in the, there are moments in church history where the church has had to wake up and be like, do you know what? It feels like maybe the glory's departed. How does the glory depart? And to articulate this, I, I want to take you to a random um, set of passages in the Old Testament. It's in a random book called the book of Ezekiel. And in this book, the, the prophet Ezekiel has these visions of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple in Jerusalem. So here is a map of the temple in Jerusalem. And I know what some of you will be thinking. You'll be thinking, Pete, it's fascinating to me that you would think I am remotely interested in the temple at the time of Ezekiel and maps to do with the temple. It, it's humorous to me that you think I give up about the temple in Jerusalem at the time of Ezekiel. Um, but when you see this map of the temple at the time of Jerusalem, I don't want you just to see a map of a, a temple way back in human history. I want you see, to see a picture of your own heart and my heart, and a picture of the church, right? So Paul says in his letters to the church in Corinth, he says it on two occasions, he says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. First time he says this, the you is singular. In other words, you as an individual, right? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Therefore, your heart, your mind, your body, your being should be a meeting point of heaven and earth where the glory of God resides. So we're not just talking about how the glory departs from the temple. How does the glory depart from your heart and how does it depart from mine? Right? The second time Paul says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The you is plural. He says to the gathered church, the body of believers gathered like this. He says, collectively, when you gather like this, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Like the spirit of the living God resides in you as you gather. You are the meeting point of heaven and earth, the place where God's glory dwells. How does the glory depart from moments like that? And as we read these passages in Ezekiel, you're like, oh, wow. It happens slowly. It happens incrementally by decision after decision to compromise. So let me give you some examples. So this is the journey. If you look at the screen, um, the, the glory of the Lord in these accounts in Ezekiel starts in the Holy of Holies. Um, where it's meant to be. And then it eventually moves to the threshold of the temple. And then it goes to the south side of the inner court. And then it goes to the eastern gate. Um, and after that, in these passages that we're going to look at, it actually leaves the temple altogether and goes onto a mountain overlooking the temple in Jerusalem. So let's read some of these accounts of this incremental departure of the glory of God from the temple. And remember... We're actually talking about your heart and my heart. We're talking about this church and the wider church. So station number one, when Ezekiel was first transported to the temple in his vision, he saw God's glory and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. Now here's the corresponding compromise. The glory was cohabiting, however, with the seat of the image of jealousy, which was an image of Baal. So Ezekiel, in this image, it's like he can see the worshipping life of the people of God in the temple of Yahweh God and the Holy of Holies. That's where the, the presence of God, the glory of God is residing. And then he sees in that place, they're worshipping an image of Baal. Like what? 
the place set aside for the worship of Yahweh. And they know that God is a jealous God. He's not going to share his glory with anyone else. And he can see they're worshipping Baal in the place set aside for the worship of Yahweh. Don't worry, it gets worse. Station two then, because of their sinful compromise, the glory moved to the threshold of the temple. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, the, the angel, where it had been to the threshold of the temple, moved from the Holy of Holies and now standing at the threshold. But there's more compromise. Ezekiel shown unclean beasts and idols portrayed on the walls. And he saw 70 elders offering incense to idols in one of the rooms of the temple courts. This represented another point of decision. And because of their choices, the glory continued to depart. So he, he can see the worship of Baal. And then he sees these 70 elders worshipping idols in the temple courts. This is the place set aside for the worship of Yahweh. They know that God will not share his glory with another. What is Going on and the glory departs. Don't worry, it gets worse. Station three, Ezekiel saw cherubim that were standing on the south side of the temple. Then he said, the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. So now the glory had moved from the threshold to the south end of the temple. There's a corresponding compromise. Ezekiel saw women at the north gate of the temple weeping for Tammuz. The worship of Tammuz involved temple prostitution together with all its accompanying lewdness. Now you'd expect this in the temple of the surrounding nations, right? But this is happening in the temple of Yahweh God, the God of Israel. They're worshipping Baal. They're worshipping idols and they're worshipping Tammuz with all of the corresponding debauchery that goes with the worship of Tammuz. Don't worry, it gets worse. Station four, the glory moved with the cherubim and came to stand at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. The glory was yet another step from its rightful place. More compromise. Ezekiel was shown 25 men who were in the inner court, worshipping the sun towards the east. Like this is mind blowing, knowing what the, the, the Jewish community believed about the ordering of worship in the temple, that you've got the worship of Baal, the worship of Tammuz, you've got all this idolatry and then 25 men bowing the knee and worshipping the sun, right? And it gets worse. Station five, the glory moved out of the city to the mountain that's on the east side of the city. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood in the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. And yet more compromise comes. Here it is. Ezekiel sees 25 men, perhaps the same 25 men, at the east gate, and they're devising iniquity and giving wicked counsel to the city. Now, if you know any of the key prophecies of Ezekiel, right, there's one really, really well-known prophecy, Ezekiel 47, which is of the temple and this river of life flowing from the temple, bringing kingdom life wherever it goes. But right here in this passage, there is a river flowing from the temple and it's a river of death. The place set aside to worship Yahweh. That there's going to be the place where his glory resides and begins to flow out from the temple. Right now, what we're reading of is a place of idolatry where wickedness is flowing out of the temple. And here's the thing. The glory departs and the people don't even know about it. They're so caught up in how things are they're completely shut down to this tragic moment of the glory departing. The point is this, how does the glory depart? It departs gradually in stages in response to specific compromises that are not renounced at crucial points of decision. How does the glory of God depart from the human heart? It happens really slowly. Not one big decision. It happens really slowly. 
through multiple decisions to essentially compromise and worship other idols and bow before other gods. Now, to articulate the weight of this, I know it's already pretty weighty, but let me just add to that. I want to tell you a story. I tell this story perhaps every five years or so at KXC. Just to give you a heads up, it has never landed well. Um, It's the story of how Eskimos catch or used to catch wolves in the Arctic regions. Um, I know this is a fairly new congregation because those that know the story normally groan when I even mention that I'm going to tell the story. So at the morning congregation, they're like, oh, no, not that story. Um, But this is the story then of how Eskimos used to catch wolves in the Arctic regions. Um, They would build a little trap. They would take a razor blade. They would screw the razor blade into a block of wood, right? And then they would bury that trap a few inches beneath the snow. And then the Eskimo would cut their hands um, and pour a bit of their blood onto the snow. Now, wolves have an unbelievable sense of smell. They smell the blood. They crave the blood. So they eventually find the blood and they start licking. Now, they start licking the blood, but by licking the blood, they're licking the snow. And the snow is so unbelievably cold that it begins to numb the tongue. But they keep licking and they keep licking. They eventually lick through the snow and they start to lick the blade. In other words, they begin to cut themselves. At this point, because they're so numb, they can't feel any of this. They keep licking. They're cutting themselves, but there's more blood which satisfies the cravings. They keep licking, they keep licking, they keep licking, they keep licking and eventually they bleed to death. And as I said, it's never landed well in the room. In fact, bring it back, bring it back, stay with me. 13 years ago when we planted the church, I told the story Actually, in that environment, they erupted into laughter, which tells you that a bit more of a hardness of heart in that crowd 13 years ago. This is much gentler, much softer, and and people feel traumatised by it. But the, the story's meant to shake you up. It's meant to shake you up because you do that and I do that. That's how sin functions, right? Very few people sin as active rebellion. They sin because the flesh is weak. They're like, I know this isn't good for me. I know I shouldn't do it. That's the voice of the Spirit, by the way, right? But you're like, but I can't help myself. And you start looking. And you have the voice, it's not a good idea. I know it's not a good idea, but I want this. Or I deserve this. I don't have the strength to fight this anymore. And you keep looking. And you keep looking. And every time you look, you experience more numbness and you desensitize your heart to the things of God and the things of the Spirit. And the hardness sets in and you keep looking and you keep looking and it brings about spiritual death. The Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death. This is essentially how it functions, right? You bring about a spiritual death as you desensitize yourself to the, the ways of the Spirit. This is how the glory of God departs. It doesn't happen quickly. It's not just one wrong turn. It's lots of small decisions to put other things before God. And you get to the point, you're completely unaware that the glory's departed from the temple. Like the people of God, they knew how the temple was meant to function. But they got to the point where their blindness was such that they couldn't even see that in the temple they were worshipping Baal, Tammuz, bowing and worshipping the sun, like making images, all of this stuff, right? They completely desensitize themselves. They didn't even recognize it. The glory's gone. They're just going through motions. The glory's departed. Here's a second story, a bit more hope-filled. Um, so R.T. Kendall, in his book about the anointing, 
of the Spirit tells this story of a, a couple of missionaries and they're working in the mission field and they're staying in this cottage and they love this cottage. And in the roof of the cottage, there's a dove that's found its home and established its nest there. And every morning, the, the missionary couple, they go and sit out on the deck and they're like, oh, I love the dove that lives in the roof. It's so beautiful. What a, such a peaceful bird. And when it sings, oh, it's so, made. what a magnificent creature. And they just like love talking about the dove. And Every morning they go back out on the deck. Oh, I love the dove. The dove's so beautiful. And then every so often they'd have a massive fight, as couples do, right? And they would shout, maybe even swear at one another, and they'd slam doors and get angry with one another. And at that point they noticed that the dove would disappear, just fly away. And it might take weeks, sometimes months, for the dove to return. And eventually when the dove would return, the couple would be like, it's back, it's back. Oh, I love the dove when it sings. It's such a beautiful bird. What a magnificent creature. Um, and they would just enjoy spending time in the company of one another, but with the dove present too. And the, eventually they'd have another argument. They'd swear at one another and scream and slam doors and the dove would disappear. Um, weeks, maybe months. And, and they went through a number of these episodes and they basically sat down and they said to one another, look, we, we love living with the dove. Like when the dove's in the roof, it's like, it's, it's perhaps the thing we most love about this cottage where we live. And I think we've got enough experience to know now that the dove isn't going to adjust to our behaviour, right? Because every time we do it, the dove goes. So the dove isn't going to adjust to us. I think we need to adjust to the dove. So we need to find another way of processing tension if, if we're going to actually do life with the dove, right? I don't know how they articulated it. Almost certainly not that. Um, <laughs> Right, But a beautiful picture of the Spirit. The Spirit's called the Holy Spirit, right? Because the Spirit really cares about holiness. The Spirit won't adapt to your ethical framework for living. He invites you to adapt to how He lives and His priorities. And if you want to walk with the Spirit, there comes a moment where you're like, do you know what? We need to reframe how we operate because we want to do life with the Spirit. And we want to do life in the Spirit. Like, this is an exciting moment in the church. As I've said, like, I've not known days like this where the spiritual hunger in the church is rising, right? And, and more than that, the sense of the manifest presence of God when we gather, the sound of our worship, it feels extraordinary. More than that, and this really excites me, the church is beginning to take seriously the pursuit of holiness and talk about purity, Right, think of Psalm 24. Like if you want to ascend the hill of the Lord and experience his presence, you need clean hands and a pure heart. Like seemingly to me, lots of people are talking about what it means to have clean hands and a pure heart because they're so desperate to ascend the hill of the Lord. Like this feels really exciting. It's stirring in the church. But do you want to know something more exciting? It's stirring beyond the church, right? There is a spiritual hunger level stirring beyond the walls of the church and the culture around us. People are tearing up the secular scripts that they've been handed, basically saying this doesn't work. We're hungry for something different. They don't know that what they're hungry for is the presence of the living God, the person of Jesus. But they're beginning to search and they're seriously hungry. And we need to be attentive to this. We need to be attentive to the fact that in the culture that surrounds us, people are beginning to take purity seriously. 
Now, it's a misdirected vision of purity. It's called cancel culture. It's totally dysfunctional and fully toxic, but we need eyes to see that this is a secular alternative to holiness. What the secular culture is trying to do is drive out impurity and drive out carriers of impurity. The reason it's dysfunctional and totally toxic is there's no redemption, there's no reconciliation, there is no restoration. But we should notice the spirit behind it of like, we wanna drive out impurity from the camp. This is a moment for us to rise up and tell our story. Like we have, you know, someone who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, that hunger that's stirring. We wanna introduce you to the person of Jesus, but we also wanna redirect these longings for purity towards Jesus, towards the cross, because through the cross, there can be reconciliation. There can be redemption. There can be restoration. Cancel culture will not work because hate will never drive out hate. Only love can do that. Only the cross can do that. And we need to rise up and say, there is an alternative to cancel culture. We love that you want purity. Here's a better path to purity. Like one of the things that's honestly tragic as you look at some parts of the church right now, it seems like the secular culture is taking purity more seriously than certain parts of the church. And we need to wake up. It's like, this is a moment. If we want to ascend the hill of the Lord, we need clean hands and we need a pure heart. The glory departs slowly, incrementally, by bad decisions that put idols first, that desensitize your hearts to the person of God and the movements of his spirit. So how do we prepare for glory? If the glory departs, you'll know the rest of the story is about the glory returning. And by the time you get to the New Testament, this is like the inbreaking of glory as the kingdom of God breaks in. Um, how does the, the glory return? I wanna name this. It normally starts in the wilderness. It normally starts in the place of like dryness. More often than not, God leads someone to the wilderness or more specifically allows them to make really bad decisions that lead them into the wilderness, right? And in that place of desperation where they become so thirsty, like, God, I need you to break in now. There is no plan B. I need you to break in. That's normally the moment God says, okay, you're ready for me to move. Get ready for glory. This is the story of the Exodus narrative. Moses making bad decisions. He's on the run from Pharaoh. He ends up in the wilderness. He ends up desperate, burning bush. And God says, okay, you're ready now. You're so desperate for the inbreaking of my kingdom, my glory. You're, you're ready for this now. Fast forward to the New Testament. John the Baptist in the wilderness, desperate. Think of Jesus led to the wilderness, like desperate. And this is God saying, okay, get ready. It's time to unleash my glory. Okay, so listen to these words, Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is the text used to articulate the ministry of, of John the Baptist. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So when God leads the church into a place of the wilderness, which is where we've been, by the way, like over the last years as the church, particularly in the West, in massive decline, and then COVID hits and like panic, and that accelerates a certain level of decline. And then what we're seeing now is the church like waking up from sleep, desperate for the presence of God, so desperate that it's when to talk about holiness, 
and purity, clean hands, pure heart, right? Um, in these moments in the wilderness, God says, okay, it's time to get ready. And these will be some of the signs of my glory, like coming to you. This is what Bob Sword says. This passage describes how God prepares his people for glory. He builds a highway in the hearts of his people by filling in the valleys, bringing down the high places, making the crooked places straight and the rough places smooth. These are all operations of God upon the human heart, preparing us for his visitation. Let's just walk through them quickly as we close. Every valley shall be exalted. To prepare us for glory, God first of all fills in the valleys of our lives. This refers to the low places in our hearts that need to be filled with confidence in God. Every heart in the room has valleys in it. And those valleys are the places where you have zero expectation that God is going to move. Either through disappointment or just low levels of faith. You're like, do you know what? I've got faith for X, Y, Z, but faith for that. No, I've got no faith for that. I don't have faith that God can rebuild my marriage. It's a mess. I'm not saying this personally, but there'll be people in the room. Like I, I have no faith that, that God can move in my career. I, I just got backstory after backstory of disappointment in my career. I just don't have faith that God can move there. I've been praying for healing for dot, dot, dot. Do you know what? I just, I just don't have faith that God can move in that you know, way anymore. I don't have faith that God can provide. I've read stories of God providing for others, but like my, my backstory, you know, I just, I don't have faith for that. Every heart in the room will have valleys. And one of the signs of God preparing his church for glories is those valleys will get filled in. And the place where there is zero expectation, you'll begin to believe again. And you'll begin to pick up certain prayers that you gave up praying. You're like, do you know what? I'm going to go after it again. I am going to pray for that healing or I am going to pray for the restoration of my marriage or the inbreaking of God's kingdom when it comes to my career. The valleys are going to get filled in. So I want to say to you, if there are areas in your life where you have zero expectation for God to move, like watch this space, I think God's going to start filling in some of the valleys. He's already doing it. He's already doing it. Secondly, every mountain and hill brought low. Nothing is more glorious than when God fills in the valleys. Nothing is more painful than when God levels the mountains. Every mountain refers to the high things in our lives against which God sets his face, such as pride, private agendas, personal ambitions, self-promotion, self-reliance, self-determination, rebellion, competitiveness, etc. God is setting his face against flowery orations, hype, personality-driven leadership styles that God's people, um, that get God's people enamoured with the messenger instead of the sender. Now, when I read a list like that, I, I know what this is like because I know what I'm like. Someone else comes to mind. Exactly, they are arrogant. And I don't like that ministry. I, I wasn't actually pointing to someone. Someone was like, well, this is a fully intense moment. And no, I wasn't pointing at anyone in particular. But people begin to point the finger, right? When, when you hear a list like this, what it's meant to do is like, oh God, there are high places in my life. You need to bring them down. Like I can't point fingers right now because there are mountains I ascend where I, I basically take the deep longings of my heart and I try and get them satisfied outside of your presence. Like, Lord, I am so sorry. Bring that mountain down. 
Like what we're seeing right now in the church is a hunger for purity that, that means there are waves of confession. And again, I've never seen anything like it where people are desperately wanting to get right with God and basically saying, Lord, I have idolized money. I've idolized my career. I've idolized my reputation. I've, I've ascended the mountain thinking that success in the workplace will give me this sense of validation. And it hasn't done any of that. I've been going up these high places. It doesn't work. Bring the mountains down. Lord, bring the mountains down. There are waves of confession that are bringing about kingdom life that are very, very exciting right now. The Lord wants to bring the mountains down. Every mountain may even refer to demonic strongholds, sociological mindsets and natural hindrances which would stand in opposition to the advance of our glorious gospel. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ must be brought down so that God's glory might visit this planet. We are seeing a shaking, not just at like a local level, Right, not just within the church, institutions are being shaken. Nations are being shaken. It is fascinating if we open our eyes to see what's happening right now. Mountains are being brought down. The crooked places shall be made straight. The crooked places refer to sinful secrets we are harboring that no one else but God sees. He will expose the crooked places. Either we must deal privately with the crooked places in our hearts or God will deal with them publicly. Either way, it's essential that we make the crooked places straight if we want a visitation from God. Like for those, and it's probably only two in the room, that follow Christian media, um, you'll be aware right now that in the wider church, like ministries are being exposed. Stuff that's been in the dark is being brought into the light and it's shaking the church. Judgment begins with the house of God. Amen? It's a tepid amen, but yeah. Um, It's the kind of thing we say amen to, but it's like, it's actually pretty brutal. When judgment begins with the house of God, it basically means, says God, it it, it means that God is basically saying, do you know what? For your own redemption, it's the kindness of God that leads to redemption. For your own redemption, I'm going to expose some of the stuff that you need to repent of. Leadership styles, that you thought was just strong leadership, but you're now waking up to the fact that those styles were abusive and there was a trail of collateral behind them. Like, I'm just exposing this stuff to lead you towards the light. And and what we say to young leaders at KXC, we've got a number of curates, a number of ordinands that are on a journey towards church planting. What I'm beginning to say to them is like, do you know what? If there's anything in the darkness now, can I encourage you to bring it into the light? Because you have a choice to voluntarily bring it into the presence of God and allow him to heal and redeem, or in 20 years' time, when potentially you're in a more significant place of leadership and therefore the collateral will be greater, it could come out in an involuntary way and that will be devastating. Either way, it's going to come into the light. You can be a voluntary part of it or or God will do it publicly. My encouragement, deal with it now. Deal with it while it's small. Bring it into the light. And the Lord is doing this right now. It's a work of the Spirit. He's doing it. Finally, the rough places shall be made smooth. This is a reference to personality and character attributes, abrasive and counterproductive to the kingdom. All of us have rough areas in our lives. We're helpless to change in our own strength. These rough places, I would describe this as like hardness of heart. It's a little bit like what we spoke of earlier. When you desensitize yourself to the voice of God and the, the presence of God, there's a hardness of heart, right? There's a hardness of heart. And, and I just want to say, as, as we go after, like praying for a move of the Spirit, an outpouring of the Spirit, there'll be lots of questions that people should ask, right? 
could ask. And I want to say, like, ask those questions. Like, if you're a natural skeptic, I'm one of them too, right? And you're like, do you know what? I really want to believe. I want to lean in in a moment like this. But I got some questions. I've got some doubts. I really want to be on board. But can I just ask these questions? I'm like, bring them on. Ask all the questions. Be incredibly curious. Do not shut down the questions. Things are concerning when you shut down the questions, right? So there's a skepticism, even doubts, which I'm like, no, that's part of the journey to faith, but that's different to cynicism, right? Skepticism is like, I want to believe. Could you help me? I'm struggling. Cynicism is like, I don't even want to believe, right? Like th- think of Jesus, the story where he, he feeds 5,000 people with like a kid's snack lunch, right? It's like this unbelievable miracle. That's what the nation of Israel were longing for. They were longing for a new Moses figure to bring about a new liberation like he'd done, you know, leading them out of, of slavery in Egypt. And the people in the first century, we need another Moses, another redeemer, another one who feeds us in the wilderness and brings us to freedom. And then Jesus rocks up and feeds 5,000 people. This is like manna from heaven. Like it's clear as day what's going on. Um, and after this, miracle the crowd start moaning we want a sign like we want a sign you've just been given a sign he's just fed 5,000 people in the wilderness like Moses providing manna from heaven in, in the wilderness he is your redeemer he's coming to liberate and set free and they're like we want a sign like can you see what's happening that that's hardness of heart and Jesus says like I, you know, if you can't see what's going on, I, I can't help you. You've just had your sign. Like, e- even if there was something smack in your face, i.e. the resurrection, your heart's so hard, you wouldn't even see it. You wouldn't, wouldn't even be alert to what's going on, right? And, and I want to say, like, skepticism, asking all the questions in a moment like this, yes, bring it on, right? Don't silence the questions for your own health and spirituality. But a uh, posture of cynicism, that's really worrying, right? Like if there's a hardness of heart where you're like, do you know what, I, did, I don't even want to believe. And even if the volcano bursts and the dam breaks, I don't want involvement. I don't want to see the glory of God. I don't want to relinquish control, right? Like that's the kind of thing, that's a rough place. And, and if, if that's where you are right now, don't beat yourself up, right? But do confess and do ask that the Lord would come and take that rough place and make it smooth. He will do that. He will do that. This is what's stirring in the church. Jesus is building a highway in the hearts of his people by filling in the valleys, bringing down the high places, making the crooked places straight and the rough places smooth. And these are all operations of God upon the human heart, preparing us for glory. So I'll close with this image. Could it be, I I might be wrong, right? But I'm just asking the question. Could it be that what we're witnessing, this growing hunger for the presence of God, this growing sense of the manifest presence of God when we worship him. Like, could it be these stories of Asbury and what's been spreading across the US and across the UK and other parts of the world? Could it be that there's just some cracks in the the wall beginning to emerge? Could it be that waters are beginning to flow? And if there's a few more cracks and a few more holes, what if the whole dam began to break? And what if the glory of God was revealed, right? That's what we're longing for. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's going to happen, guys. It will absolutely happen when Christ returns. 
But there are moments in church history, they're called revivals, where we get a foretaste of what's to come as the glory is poured out.